Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is found from Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the lamb of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Janet. If we haven't met yet, it's nice to meet you. My name is Chris. Uh, I serve as the pastor here, and it's just a joy. It's a joy to be here. It's a joy to be with you all. It's a joy to be together today as we celebrate Advent. Advent, I say this every week leading up to Christmas, every single year. You're all sick of hearing me say it, and I will tell you again. Advent is not Christmas. Uh, Advent is the season that leads up to Christmas, and it's a season when, as we mentioned before, we intentionally name the darkness in our lives, and we look at face-to-face the sin in our lives, the brokenness in our lives, the anxiety in our lives, the grief in our lives, and for many of us, the season leading up to Christmas is a season of grief, among other things. And we ask God to break into that darkness that is in our lives. Now, unlike God's people at the time of Jesus' birth, we have the benefit of hindsight. And so we know that even as we long for God to break into the darkness, on the other hand, we know he has. And he has done so through Jesus, his son, the Messiah. But Jesus' people, the Jews around Jesus' time, they didn't know. And yet, even though they didn't know what God was doing or see what God was doing, they found meaningful hope, even without the advantage of hindsight that we have. And they found meaningful hope in the scriptures, which we're drawing from this December. We're looking specifically at Isaiah chapter 9. Here's one of the lines from the reading today. 
It says, on those living in the land of the shadow of death. By the way, that phrase, the land of the shadow of death, that sounds familiar, right? That's also used in Psalm 23. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You know, when you get up really early, those of you who get up before the sunrise, if you get up and it's dark out, and then imperceptibly, like who knows when it starts to get light out? When is that exact moment? We don't know. But all of a sudden you look up and you notice the sun hasn't written, risen yet, but it's starting to get light. The sun has not yet peaked over the horizon, but you start to see light spilling out from the horizon over the east. And even that light is a guarantee that the sun will rise this morning. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Isaiah wrote this probably around 730 BC, give or take, in one of the darkest moments of their collective memory. And even in that, God assures his people then, just as he assures us now through the very same scripture, that even though you, don't, you can't see the sun yet, but it's coming. And you look at the light that's starting to emerge over the horizon and let that be a guarantee that God is closer than you think. In Isaiah 9, God is promising us, I'm closer than you think. And he gives us, as an assurance of that promise, four titles. This is how he describes himself. And we're spending this month looking at those four titles this is the very famous verse, right? It's in, um, my daughters and I were listening to Handel's Messiah as we had breakfast yesterday, and it comes up again. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this morning, we're thinking about this one title, the God who delivers us will be called Mighty God. What does that mean, Mighty God? Now, to many of us, when we read the words Mighty God, and there are probably a number of reasons for this, it just kind of sounds generic. It's probably the most generic of the titles, of the sermon titles, in fa- or not sermon titles, but those titles for the Messiah. But as soon as we start digging into it, it gets a little bit more problematic to our 21st century Western ears. And yet, even through the problems, we'll find that it is loaded with hope and a guarantee of joy. What does it mean that God is mighty God? That's what we're thinking about this morning. And specifically, not just what does it mean, but why does that, why should that fill us with joy? Why is that a guarantee of joy? The word mighty, it all really comes down to this one fact. The word mighty in Hebrew doesn't just mean powerful in a generic sense. It's a word used almost exclusively to describe warriors, to describe soldiers, to describe people in battle. In fact, the Hebrew word for a warrior comes from the exact same root as this word mighty, for mighty God. So it's not too much of a stretch to translate it if you wanted to. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Warrior God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It means so much more than just he can do a lot of stuff. And in modern America, the year of our Lord, 2023, this language is probably unexpected at best, and maybe even cringy for, for more of us. When we think about a warrior God, that seems so ancient. Like, aren't we, aren't we past that? Let's be honest. Haven't we developed beyond that understanding of God? 
And part of the reason we cringe at that phrase even is because of our context and our history. When we hear God and war in the same sentence, those two words, it reminds us of events like the Crusades or, or the Inquisition. And those are, I mean, let's be honest, those are a blight on the history of the church. But we also have to remember that we're reading an ancient text through 21st century American eyes. And you and I have not needed God to be a warrior in our lives, in all probability. At least not in the sense that most of us think of warriors. We live comfortable lives. And so by and large, our problems are first world problems. And no wonder the idea of a warrior God seems so foreign. So we had to take our car into the shop this week. And I got annoyed because we had to pay more money than seemed reasonable to repair the motor that rolls the window up and down in the car. You ever had to do that, replace the regulator motor? Now think about this with me for just a minute. A motor rolls the window in our car up and down because it was too much work to turn a crank. (laughs) That's outrageous. Much less like we have a car. In fact, our family has two cars, and both of them have air conditioning. I I drive to work most days a mile and a half. That's silly. There are people in the world who walk farther than that, like by an order of magnitude, add a zero to the end of that, just to get water. And I get frustrated because on my way to work, my car doesn't warm up enough to blow warm air on my cold feet. I don't need a warrior God when my main problem in life is that the motor that rolls my car window up and down broke. Right? No wonder this is such a foreign idea to us. But when your problem is that the Assyrian army in 730 BC is leveling your city and kidnapping your wives and your sons and your daughters and you don't know if you'll ever see them again, and they are slaughtering your relatives and your neighbors indiscriminately and leaving bodies in the street. You need a warrior God. Do you see? This is why, by the way, it's so important to read scripture in context and to work not just to overlay our 21st century American experience on an ancient Eastern text. That's when we start getting in trouble and misinterpreting it. God the warrior is frankly unnecessary for the strong, for the haves. God the warrior is exceedingly good news for the weak and the have-nots. And let's make this clear, that God, when he talks about war, and this is not just in Isaiah 9, it's all throughout scripture, he only acts justly and righteously. A lot of times there can be a fear when we start talking about stuff like this, that God might, I'm using this kind of metaphorically, that God might declare war unjustly. Let's just point out a few things. First, and I'm just, I'm going to like skip off the the surface of this one and then move on, but, but don't miss this. This is actually a pretty important point. If you're concerned that God is doing something unjustly, that means, think about this with me, that means you are judging whether God is just. And if you are judging whether God is just, that means you are judging God. And if you are judging God, then God is not God, you are. 
So even in the concern that God might not be acting justly, what we're really saying is, God, I know better than you. That will lead you into all sorts of problems. And I told you, I'm going to like just drop that one and move on. God assures us throughout scripture that if it's not just and right, it's not God. We actually get this in this scripture reading. Look at verse 7 if you have your Bible open. He, this is the Messiah, God's man, will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. God is just and righteous. Everything God does is just and righteous. Even when he, to extend this image of a warrior God, declares war. That when God declares war, he only, this is so important, he only declares war on injustice and oppression and wickedness. The innocent have nothing to fear from a warrior God because he's just. It is only the wicked and the evil who ought to be sweating. Now, if God is our warrior, the one fighting, it begs the question, what does he fight and what is our response? What's our role? And like I said, the Old Testament is filled with images of a warrior God. This was a very comforting image to ancient Israel. And the more you know about the story of ancient Israel, the more you can understand how comforting this image would be. Let's go to maybe the clearest of them in Exodus 14. In Exodus 14, verse 14, Israel is running for their lives from the Egyptians. They just thought they had been set free from slavery to the Egyptians, and now the Egyptians have changed their minds and are bearing down one of the biggest armies in the world against a ragtag group of people. And God reassures them and says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Now, if you've got the most advanced army in the world coming after you, imagine how it sounds to hear, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. If you're anything like me, you're thinking, yeah, right. Like, find me the nearest stick or pitchfork or something. But if God, think about it, I mean, if God really is fighting on our behalf against wickedness and injustice and oppression, what is our role? You need only to be still. Isaiah reaffirms this. This is later in Isaiah, but in Isaiah 30, He says, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. In repentance and, your salvation is in repentance and rest. In quietness and trust is your strength. How often when we feel like things or life is coming at us, what we perceive to be wicked or enemies are coming at us, do we feel like, okay, and again, this is a metaphor, obviously, but like take up arms. And to be sure, there are times in Scripture where God calls us to step in and to act. This is going to complicate things a little bit. He calls us to step in and to use the word metaphorically, fight, not literally fight, but metaphorically. And God especially calls us to step in and let's say speak up 
on behalf of people who are weaker than we are. And I've kind of started wrestling with this question this week. Like, okay, so that begs a really important question. When do you step in and when do you step back? When do you step in? When do you lean in? And when do you lean back and let God fight for you? And I'll be honest, I'm not sure I have an ironclad answer, but there are two questions that are ringing in my mind that will at least help diagnose your heart. First, if you're wondering, like, is this something where I really need to lean in or is this something where I need to trust God and step back? First, have you asked a spiritual counselor about this? Not just your buddy who always agrees with you, but someone who is wise and godly. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, I love this, profuse are the kisses of your enemy and faithful are the wounds of your friend. You see where that's going, right? The best friend is the one who will wound you, who will tell you what you don't want to hear because they know it's for your good. I hope you have that friend. That's the friend whose advice you should seek out and listen to most carefully. Have you asked a wise, trusted spiritual counselor about this? Second kind of diagnostic question, and this gets more to the heart of this text. You might ask yourself, well, what am I afraid of losing here? What am I afraid of losing? In the late 1970s, a couple of psychologists, Kahneman and Tversky, if you want to look them up, I can give you some sources, they discovered, they did a series of quantitative analyses, and they discovered that the pain of losing something is twice as powerful an emotion as the pleasure of gaining something. Now that sounds abstract. I'll say it again and then I'll illustrate it. The pain of losing something is twice as powerful an emotion as the pleasure of gaining something. That means if you lose something, it hurts twice as much as it feels good to have gotten it. Or to offset the pain of losing $100, you need to find 200 If you lose $100 and you gain 150, it will feel like a net loss to you. You just earned 50, but you didn't earn, you just found. And it will still feel like a loss because the sting of losing that 100 is so, so bad. So as we're evaluating, is this a place to step in or to sit back and let God fight for us? It can be helpful to ask, is my draw towards stepping in, I feel compelled to step in, I need to defend myself or defend something, is that coming from a fear of losing something? God never in scripture tells his people to fight to avoid losing something, never. In fact, if you want to skip way ahead to Jesus, what does Jesus say? He says, if you want to enter my kingdom, you need to be willing to lose everything because he's our provider. Our, our bent, our inclination to scrap and to claw and to avoid loss at all costs can betray a distrust in God. Or it shows that we trust ourselves more than we trust God. And so if you discern that your inclination to take matters into your own hands is really because you're afraid of some loss, that might tell you something about a helpful response. Now, there's always this question lingering in the back of our mind. It's really hard to be still and let God fight for us. 
And I know this is still a little bit abstract because again, most of us don't, we don't feel like we need that in that sense. We're going to get there, I promise. And we often ask like, okay, well, what if I sit back and then God doesn't act? If it's truly in the case of injustice, if God doesn't act, then he's not God. You should find a different God to follow and maybe find something better to do with your Sunday morning too. Because God always, always steps in and intervenes on behalf of righteousness and justice. And we still think like, but I don't see it. And, and even as I say that, you're probably thinking of areas in your life where you're like, yeah, Chris, but, and maybe it's something from your life where you've experienced a deep injustice or maybe it's just something you saw in the news this morning. What about that? This is where we can really lean into the experience of the Israelis, of the Jews. Remember, God promises them this, I will send somebody to be your redeemer in 730 BC, and the redeemer, who we know with the benefit of hindsight is Jesus, doesn't show up until almost 730 years later. How were they feeling in the interim? God tells us that he's much more patient than we are, he sees a much bigger picture than we see. In 2 Peter, Peter assures us, he puts it this way, he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient. I love this. He adds, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. There's a gospel singer, I don't know if any of you listen to old gospel music, but if you do, you might remember the singer Dottie Peoples, and she sang the song, On Time God. And I love kind of these old gospel tunes are so simple, like there's nothing fancy about them. And the lyrics just say, he's an on-time God, yes he is. He's an on-time God, yes he is. He may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. Now, how do you think Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, are feeling the week before the angel Gabriel comes and tells them that their lives are about to, to be completely changed? The week before, they're probably with their people. I mean, life is pretty normal. They're excited. They're engaged. They're going to get married. And yet, in the back of their minds, you think they're also wondering, it's been 700 years, God. Seven, can you imagine waiting for something? 700 years? 700 years ago from today? Europe had not even endured the Black Plague yet. That's how long ago 700 years is. Can you imagine waiting that long for God to fulfill his promise? He often moves slower than we wish he would, but that doesn't mean he's not moving. It doesn't mean he's not there. He moves slower, and he also moves lower. Slower and lower. By which it, I just mean like, God works in ways that seem too modest and too humble to be effective. If you just look through the Old Testament at who God chooses to be his agents, he always picks people who are either way too young or way too old, who are way too inexperienced or who are way past their prime. I mentioned last week, I used the phrase imposter syndrome. It's almost as if God exclusively picks people to use who feel this deep sense of imposter syndrome. God, I'm not ready for this. And God always says, you know what God always says? Basically, he goes, I know. 
you're not. And nobody will believe it, I know. And that's so that everybody can look back on this and say that had to be God. There was no other way. Because that person was too inexperienced. She was past her prime. But look what I can do. He works through the unlikeliest of people and the unlikeliest of means. Sometimes, zooming way back to Exodus, it means damming up a river so that your people can walk across on dry land. And sometimes it means something like sending his own son, who's from a backwoods area, not the center of power, and who becomes an ordinary Jewish carpenter, not a, an esteemed religious leader, and whose ministry happens mostly among rural nobodies, not in urban centers of power, who teaches things like if you want to save your life, you need to lose it. And everyone who promises, everyone who loses their life for my sake will surely save it. And whose own bootstrapped ministry is cut short just three years in. Not even enough time to gain any sort of traction, right? As he's mercilessly crushed by the Romans. Does that sound like the way you would expect God to fight for his people? And yet on the third day, the women went to anoint their Savior's lifeless body and the, the stone was already rolled back and the tomb was empty. And in the most unlikely way, God had broken death's back. Like he snapped sin's neck. If you've seen the movie Gran Torino, it's probably 15 years old or so now, like this is, this is Gran Torino, just to help put some flesh on it. And Clint Eastwood's character, Walt Kowalski, remember, I won't give it away if you haven't seen it, but Walt Kowalski achieves his greatest victory through the, just the most incredible sacrifice and the unlikeliest of events. God tells us in 1 Corinthians that he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now, for the most part, you and I, when we're thinking about a warrior God, like we're not oppressed militarily. We don't actually need a, a military warrior God. But we know from Jesus' teaching and from the Old Testament and from the Apostle Paul that every one of us is a slave to sin. And Jesus, the Messiah, our mighty God, our warrior God, went to war against sin and won. And therefore, joy belongs to us. You notice how the, the reading today, it almost leads with joy. Let me, let me read from you again. Isaiah chapter 9 says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. You can't be filled with joy and fear at the same time. They're incompatible. Before the harvest, if you're an ancient farmer, before the harvest time, you're nervous and afraid basically all year long. What if we don't get enough rain? What if we get too much rain? What if pests and locusts come and, and just absolutely wipe out our crops? What if, what if, what if? But at harvest time, it's pure joy. If you're an ancient soldier, probably, I'm sure a modern soldier too, for that matter, before the battle, what are you, you're just filled with fear. What if our side loses? What if, I, what if I lose my life? What if things don't go the way we planned? 
What if the enemy does something that we didn't, we didn't anticipate? But after the battle and after you've won, when you're dividing the plunder, what is it? It's just joy. It's just joy. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Friends, the harvest has come, and the battle has been won. Past tense. Not by our prowess and our power and our clever conniving and scheming, but scheming, but simply by Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of who? The zeal of the Lord. Almighty, there's that word again, will accomplish this. Amen.